Welcome to Meet the Designer at the Apple Store, Regent Street in London. Would you please welcome our guest moderator, Grazia Fashion Director, Susanna Frankel, and our guest tonight, Hussein Shalian. Hi. Okay, so it is actually 20 years this year since Hussein graduated from St. Martin's. And since that time, he's been responsible for some of the most extraordinary shows certainly I've ever seen, and equally innovative and amazing clothes. So I think we're very lucky to have you here today. Thank you, Susanna. And Hussein and I talked earlier, and we thought a good place to start, because we're here in the Apple Store, is to talk about the effect that digital has had on fashion. Because in a, when you started, it was hardly there, and now it's everywhere. And how has that affected maybe your work first? Well, um, I started um, designing and with my own brand in 94. So um, it was just sort of the beginning of, um, in a way, it was the first time that we were starting to use internet to, uh, you know, to write emails. It was all very new. Um, but, you know, fashion was still kind of traditionally um, documented. So we, you know, we wouldn't really see glossy images of our collections for nearly six months. We would wait for um, this publication called Colleccionia that a lot of people in fashion know about to see actually nice images of our work because it would be all shot by slides and it would be very difficult to uh, actually print the slides. So I feel like, uh, you know, a lot of the newspapers were also photographing all very like kind of showpieces in order to sell their papers. So we then got me, and I'd say Alexander McQueen, who was in my generation, up, we were both doing like, quite experimental shows. I think we then got to be known as quite avant-garde because of the way that the newspapers portrayed us. So which was good for our image, Do I guess. Do you like that term, avant-garde? I think it's such a mis... It's terrible, isn't it? It's, <laughs> quite, it's quite bad, but it, it does There's sort no of give the way. idea because you know, a lot of people use it without knowing the meaning of it. But um, for, for me, it was very much about, um, you know, uh, waiting for the images for six months. And, uh, you know, the newspapers would, in a way, determine how we would be perceived. So with the arrival of digital era, I think it's obviously, you know, it democratized how we could be perceived because everyone can see the whole collection and they can see that you actually also make wearable clothes, that you spend you know, a lot of time on your tailoring, you're quite specific, you're quite passionate about fit, quality, all those things. Of course, it leads to plagiarism as well and other bad things that happen. But uh, I think I'm, you know, one of, I'm from a generation where you, know, where you can see that transition, really, from... So you became known first and foremost for the showpieces, which were, for example, bloody table skirt, as you yes. once described it, yes. the aeroplane dress, yeah. because those were high-impact images and because people could understand them. But in a way, it detracted from the fact that you were also making very beautiful clothes. And also, you and McQueen were lumped in together because you pushed at the boundaries of a traditional runway presentation and you were kind of trying to say more. Um, but you were very, very different. Yeah. 
What about, I mean, when I started, you had to sign a piece of paper saying even if you were at a show, even if you did take a photograph, it couldn't be published. Yeah. So now you have this instant thing which comes online straight away, which, as you say, means that everybody can see it, which is good, but it also means everyone can copy it. How do you feel about that? Is that just part of life and you deal with it? And I think it's a part of life. I, I don't, I mean, I think, you know, when you do a show, while you do your interviews after a show, uh, your collection is already online. So the collection you've just done 10 minutes ago is already online, which is a very peculiar feeling. Um, I think, um, you know, the, the interesting part of it definitely is that everyone could see your whole collection uh, as opposed to a selected amount by the writers and the journalists. So in a way, I think it, it opens up more opportunities you know, definitely, business-wise, it can have uh, a better impact. Uh, downside of it is, yes, that, you know, uh, your work gets, uh, you know, people can look at it much more quickly, they can produce, you know, they can take ideas really quickly, which happens to all the designers. So I think there's pros and cons. Um, so you're talking about, in a way, how the digital world has affected your process. Has that had any influence on the fact that, I think a lot of the time, people described your shows as like art installations. First of all, actually, do you, did you see them? Do you see them like that? Because you still do. I think that the shows that I do are like shows that I would like to see myself if I was to go to a show. And I think about every part of it, from the music, from the lighting, from the way it's going, to the background. Um, I work with uh, Alex de Batac, who is, the, who is a show director and a choreographer. And uh, I've worked with him for years. So I think it's, uh, it's kind of all the elements coming together. But I want it to be a cultural experience as well as looking at clothes. So I think of it like when you go to a restaurant, you want the atmosphere to be nice. You want nice sound. You want the plate to look nice. I think of it like that, really. Do you think in a way that your conceptual approach, because I think for a long time, maybe not so much now, but for a long time, because you had a conceptual approach, which I think a lot of the time you just used to keep yourself interested in a way and to inspire yourself, you kind of became marginalized as, I guess, avant-garde again, and as a conceptualist. And in a way, there was, there's something quite frustrating about that, because you clearly also care about making beautiful clothes that actually a lot of people can wear. Well, most of my time is really spent making clothes you can wear. <laughs> and the show pieces happen at the end. And, uh, you know, me and my team, we are fitting every week. You know, there's always fitting notes running around. There's always questions about finishing, this and that. And, you know, it's, uh, like I said, I think it's from the 90s that this image came about. And I think because people could, when they saw images of your work, they only saw the more extreme pieces, which I am also excited about. But really, most of our time is spent on things like sleeve heads and collar breaks and, you know, trying to eliminate seams and that kind of thing. So, and for me, I, I enjoy that part because it's, uh, it's much more exciting to see people wear your clothes sometimes than editorial because that's when things become real. Tell us about that, you know, tell us about when you see somebody wearing your clothes and how it makes you feel. It's the strangest and the greatest feeling and it could also be you want to know the person and when they bought it and what do they think about it. You know, it it's almost becomes a, a, a fascination with that person. And I would be in a, I would be in a sort of a grocery store, or you know, I'd be like in a, 
corner shop, whatever, and I see someone wear something from mine from like years ago, and I would actually, I'll say something like, oh, I like your jacket. And then that <laughs> starts, a, it starts the conversation, and then they realize I'm the designer, and you know, it actually creates, uh, I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's exciting, and it's nice to see what kind of people buy it as well. It's the most unexpected people. Like, why unexpected? Well, they don't, because of the way they mix it, and you think, oh my God, you're wearing it with that. And do, you think that's, do you sometimes think, <laughs> oh my God, in a bad way? <laughs> well, my mother has already set the standards <laughs> of how she mixes it, so I'm, you know, I've already got used to seeing my clothes like, you know, mixed with, you know, she, I don't know, it's, I won't go into that, but <laughs> I mean, already, I think I'm used to it from my family. But, Honestly, sometimes people can mix it really well as well, because to see a designer head-to-toe is just naff. I mean, you don't yeah. want anyone to wear one designer head-to-toe. It's so unstylish. So are you ever recognised personally? I think I am sometimes, and um, because I'm not really aware of... Like, I don't really think of how I come across or anything like that. I just do what I do, and I don't think of designers as celebrities. I've always said that to you. So I don't, I'm not aware in that way, except that when you could be having a lunch with someone and someone kind of comes and just stand there until you note them, and it's, it is, <laughs> they just stand there without moving. And then, you know, my partner sometimes thinks that I'm not soft enough with that, but I'm thinking, like, you're actually invading my space, and I wouldn't <laughs> do it to you. And it's nothing to, do with being, nothing to do with being a designer or being anything. It's just, on a human level, peculiar. But I think... Some designers have become celebrities, and actually, you know, John Galliano, Tom Ford, Vivian, yeah. Donatella, yeah. they're McQueen. absolutely McQueen. Yeah, yeah, maybe an anti-celebrity, but yes, yeah. um, and they have also been the person who represents the brand, so they are the brand. Yeah, and I, I think I guess it's partly a marketing thing. But do you think of yourself like that? Um, Could your brand be called something completely different that didn't have your name in it, for example? Possibly, but I'm too attached to it to, to separate myself. And I do think that when you're a designer also, you go... I mean, I go to work every day, apart from Fridays, which is my research day, but it ends up being a full day. Um, I am... How could I put it? I, I, I don't know. I am just doing it and not thinking about how I'm perceived or how I should be perceived. I'm just doing it. I can only judge other people from, like, I definitely think Galliano and Westwood and all these people have become celebrities in a way. Um, I guess I don't take myself that seriously. I take my work seriously. And there is something in that as well. That um, I, I do think that there's a difference between you thinking of yourself as the brand and what you do as the brand. Absolutely. Yeah. Because you do actually put a lot of quite personal things into your clothes. You know, stories that are clear references to yeah. your own heritage. Um, many serving champagne, serving some pain to your uh, models as yeah, a waiter. Yeah, you've appeared. You played guitar on stage. Yeah, that was no. quite a celebrity thing to do. Well, it's not celebrity. It's fun. <laughs> I didn't think of it as celebrity. You just like learning the guitar, I just didn't enjoyed you? it. And it, was, it got me out of my... You know, it was, it was just an enjoyable thing. I am an adventurous person. I do like a good adventure. Can we talk a little bit about your background? Because that is very tied up yeah. with why you're an adventurous person. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. You grew up between... Well, I, I was born in Cyprus, uh, in Nicosia, and um, in 1970, 
and um, and then Cyprus uh, is is got divided in 1974. So I'm from the Turkish part, but I, I came here quite young and then went back to Cyprus again, very much back and forth, like you said. So at this point, I spent most most of my life here. But of course, ethnically, I'm Turkish Cypriot and I'm Turkish. I speak Turkish, you know. So when you're from Cyprus and you're from the north, you identify with Turkey because you speak the same language. And um, so I think that's been a richness in my life. I feel like I've made, it's made me more of an open person coming from a bicultural background. And uh, yeah. And when you started, I mean, now I think everybody wants to be a fashion designer and it's very well known that you can be a fashion designer, yeah. but it wasn't like that really necessarily. In, yes, in the early days. So no. how did that happen? How did you... You know, why were you interested in fashion in the first place? How did it manifest itself? Where did it come from? If you can, um, well, I mean, in Cyprus, if you can drew, if if you drew well and you were vaguely artistic, they would kind of pigeonhole you and say, "Oh, you have to be an architect." If you spoke well, you have to be a lawyer. <laughs> you know, if you were good at, you know, um, you know, if you basically you'd be pigeonholed very quickly because in small places that are isolated, there's a big emphasis on education and and skill. I guess that you have to develop skills and you have to be quite studious. And, uh, you know, we were pressurized very much from a young age to do well at school. And did you do well at school? Um, I did well at school at certain stages. Later on, I did, not earlier on. Later on, I did very well. Earlier on, I didn't because I moved around too much between yeah. London, so I was quite disorientated. And you went to a boarding school where I went you to boarding felt school here as well, which I felt uncomfortable. Well, uh, I did initially, and then later, when the second time I went, I got used to it. It is like... It is kind of like a boy's prison. <laughs> and it is sort of, if you're foreign and have a vaguely foreign-sounding name, you've had it, you know? That's it, you don't... I'm just not sure the sound it's like that now, but it definitely was like that then. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, basically, um, yes, moving around, I guess, between the cu different cultures has definitely fed my curiosity. I think definitely um, it made me uh, be more flexible. I feel like I came from an island where, you know, our national news is in Greek, Turkish, English, depending on, you know, every time. So already that makes you kind of, uh, I guess, think in a different way. So, and I feel like I've come from a mixed place to another mixed place, which is London, where the different cultures coexist here, whereas the Ottoman past of Cyprus, we're also intermingled. You can't really separate anymore, you know, where your roots are from. So I feel like I'm come from like I'm innately mixed and I'm coming to a place which is already which where the mixtures are, let's say, separated as you know, different areas in London, even like the Chinatown, you know, even um, Jewish area, uh, Greek Turkish area, yeah. etc. So I feel like in a way there's a connection. So when you were growing up you weren't like making clothes for dolls, you weren't how did you know the actual that's not how it happened, right? What were you wearing? I was, uh, well, I was a lot more victim-y. Uh, <laughs> and I would really wear, like, clothes my mother would make. I was definitely also kind of from that, um, you know, post-punk era where, um, you know, I guess there was a little bit something gothy about the way I dressed, but also a little bit kind of, um, kind of the 80s um, mishmash. Um, but definitely I was really into it because, you know, that's how you expressed yourself and you wouldn't be seen dead in certain things, you know. Afterwards, I, cared, I started to care less and I started to wear... It was, now, for me, it's just about simplicity and yeah. nice cut, whatever. Um, but I feel like um, 
earlier on, really, I drew a lot. I made things in Cyprus because, you know, in places where you're isolated, there's the imminence of boredom. So I wanted to always avoid boredom. So I would always be creating my own world. Um, but then I came enough in the summer, because my father lived here, my mother lived there. I came enough in the summer to feed myself and then, let's say, break that down when I, when I went back to Cyprus. So there was definitely this world creating going on all the time. And then in 1990, I guess, you went to St. Martin's. Uh, 89. And how yeah. was that? It's very different to how it is today. Let's talk a little bit about that and about well, fashion education, maybe. Well, St. Martin's is an art school where fashion happens to be one of the departments. So it's not a fashion school. And that's what I think made it what it is. I think because you were able to mingle with people from sculpture, from fine art, and from other disciplines that you wouldn't have been able to if you just went to a fashion school. And it was also in the heart of town. So Soho was really seedy and exciting then. Now it's got very cleaned up and it's become more commercial. It was darker, it was, yeah, seedier, just very exciting. We went out a lot. It was international kind of environment at the same time. Um, you know, it was, you know, there's only 13 people in my class. Yeah. Now there's probably like 60 people. It was very much, and also it was very much about the people that were selected to be on the course. I think they made the course, not so much the tutors. I think it was about the variety of students that were chosen that really came from diverse backgrounds that, in my, in my opinion, made St. Martin's what it was then. And you cared about what a fellow student thought about your work more than your tutors, actually. Which is really interesting. And you may not want to talk about this, but it, the whole system now where people have to pay for their education and it's quite expensive to make a collection. Um, it's not, you know, you have to buy the fabric and it's much more difficult now for people who aren't reasonably well off to make it? Do you think that's fair? Well, of course it's not fair. And but do you actually, think it's fair to say that? Is it true? It's true. And of course it's not a fair situation. Um, because actually, in my view, the best people there didn't have money, didn't come from necessarily wealthy backgrounds. And I don't think being at college is about really spending money on, for, you to, for your collections to look like you know, uh, they're sold in a store. It's about experimentation. It's about trying to find out your identity. And it's not, uh, I thought that about myself when I was there. I thought, God, this is the last time I'm going to actually enjoy just experimenting without worrying about selling it because it's then you're finding your, your aesthetic. And, it's, and nowadays, I think a lot of students graduate like they are already professionals. And I'm thinking it's so dull. Yeah. Your degree collection, you're probably sick of talking about it, but it's kind of amazing. Hussein, I don't know if you all know, buried his degree collection in a friend's garden to see how it would decompose and then pulled it out. And it was taken by Isabella Blow with you to Brown's, is that correct? Yeah, kind of. It ended of. up in, in Brown's window, but yeah. it brought up a lot of the things that still interest you now. You know, archaeology, the passing of time, history, humanity, I guess. Yeah. How do you feel about it now? Why did you do it? You know, would anybody be able to do that now? Well, like I said, because it was my last chance at college where I can really experiment with ideas without worrying. And it was very much, I'm very much a free thinker. And of course, now we have a business, it's different. And you know, that was my last opportunity. I, I really see myself as a storyteller. 
And really, a lot of my work is uh, they 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 help me form the story. So I, in a way, I kind of tell stories through clothes. And uh, and there's a narrative approach. And the burying was to do with a mini story I wrote, and I recreated. Situations in the story through things that happened to the clothes. So the clothes, in a way, picked up a sense of life. So when you looked at them, you knew that they went through some kind of a process,、um, or they were, you know, part of an action. And I'd actually take little、um, segments from the story as labels and put them into the clothes, so that you knew that the garment almost, you know, carried a bit of the text, which itself was based on. And For me, it was it was just a very. And I still think that way. That I always like to have, the, the clothes to have a sense of life, really. And、uh, I don't know. Something there's something that irrationally excites me about that. But also, it's quite a warm approach because that, it's, there's a sense of emotion to that too. If somebody's wearing something and there's a story to it, and they understand the story, that's a very different thing to wearing like a full-on logoed. The thing about people wanting understanding the story or not, it's really a process for the designer to be inspired. They can just wear it because they feel confident, they like it, they feel good in it, they feel powerful in it, whatever. If they want to know about the story, that's great. But I don't think it's necessary. I think it's really about when someone buys a jacket or a dress, it should be about the cut, the way it makes them feel, and really that's what matters to me ultimately. The story is there to inspire me. But then it takes on the garments take over and the, and the construction of them take over because、um, you know the story is really there for me to make a richer product at the end. How do you want people to feel in your clothes? I guess empowered. I guess、uh, sensual. I'd say、um, uh, you know confident. All those things. I hope. Happy.、Uh, or happy. Yes, and maybe.、Uh, Also free in some way, I guess. Freedom. We should talk about over the period of your career again. Actually,、um, the industry's changed massively from the point of view that it's actually very difficult to be an independent designer. So, in the mid '90s, everybody started buying up all the labels. You know, the big conglomerates now completely. Control 90% of the industry,、mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah. The story was of young designers going to established houses. You've Done that. You've worked with, say, Cashmere. You work with Asprey. You work with Puma, PPR. But you haven't really chosen to follow that route. You've, you're independent. I'm independent. I did briefly,、um, you know, give up 51% of my brand to Puma, and then I bought it back again、uh, because we decided that、um, we don't, we weren't going to be partners. That we, I was going to pursue Puma as a creative director. So it was very brief. So yes, I've known myself mostly as an independent, and that's because I feel、um, that I, I want to be able to make my own decisions, and I don't want to be pressurised. But the, you know, then the downside of that is that your growth is slower.、You're, you can't open stores that quickly. You have to be very careful how you spend your money, and maybe in some ways it's more of a stressful life. On another hand, it's equally stressful to be under pressure. By a big conglomerate company that's going to put that kind of, you know, that's going to expect,、uh, you know, a, a, a sort of a faster development that is not necessarily real. So there's pros and cons, you know, and it depends. You can have a great partner and it can all work out if they see the growth of your brand as more long term. So I'm not actually close to the idea. I'm, I, I think more that it has to be the right, the right kind of partnership that understands the brand rather than. Someone who wants to take their money out that they put in in two seconds. 
But in a way, I mean, everything's speeded up, which is also, again, partly due to the internet. But in a way, historically, it's been more likely that a designer has taken 20, 25 years to even be able to not have to pay models in clothes. Like, I remember Helmut Lang telling me that, Margiela. It's so true. And you said it to me the other day, and I think it's so true. And it takes quarter of a century yeah. for a designer to actually establish themselves, and people don't realize this. So what the conglomerates do is they speed up that process for the designer that is, you know, maybe 10 years in business. They have, like, 10 shops, 20 shops, 30 shops, and that's fantastic. But like you said, is it a realistic growth? I don't know. And it also, you know, the thing that you have to be careful about with that, I think, is, is that it naturally makes the designer more disposable. I mean, if they're, you know, pushed like that and they hap it all happens so fast, then it's also equally easy for them to be spat out again and for it all to fall True. apart. True. So I think it's quite, a, you know, in a way, I think it's a very positive thing. Um, you, we talked about you at St. Martin's and how it was an art education. You also operate, function as an artist, fine artist. Why have you chosen to do that? I didn't know that I was a fine artist until other people told me. I, I'm just, I, think, I think of myself essentially as a designer, but also as an ideas person. So, um, and because I, am, I like ideas, and I was commissioned to do things like films and sculptures and whatever, I saw them as a natural extension of my, of my clothes, really. I didn't think of it as, oh, and now I have to think differently. For me, it's the same world. And I feel that um, they themselves have become monuments that have also inspired collections that you know, happened after. So in a way, I think the monumental pieces have become, you know, they set off ideas, yeah. and, they lead, and they're also developed from pre-existing ideas. So they kind of work together. And does it work commercially, that, that part of your career? Well, I don't know that. I, I guess it's interesting to say that you know, there have been many times where I would sell a, a limited edition film or a sculpture to a collector and then put that money into my collection. <laughs> there aren't many designers who do that. Well, <laughs> it's interesting. Um, I think it was in 2000, maybe 1999, that you moved your shows from London to Paris. Yes. And you're not the only designer to have done that. Why, why did you do it and why do you think it happens more generally? Well, in those years, I mean, I would make such a... a anyway, the shows are like births. Honestly, they are such big efforts. For me, anyway, and I was thinking that we were making such a big effort, and a lot of people were skipping London because they go from Milan to, New to sorry, they go from New York to Milan straight away, and a lot of them were skipping uh, London in those days. So I felt that really, in order for us to get more people to look see our work, uh, and also commercially as well for the buyers, more buyers to see it, we need to go to Paris. It was a natural step. It was actually pretty much a business decision. And definitely, we saw a diff it, it did impact our business. But it's not just a business um, decision, is it? Because it, you end up showing alongside Comme des Garçons, Margiela, Helmut Lang. You, you, you end up showing alongside people where maybe the context is better for you as you became slightly more developed as a designer. Um, are you asking me that I also felt confident enough to do it, you mean? No, I'm asking you if you feel that that is a, a, a more appropriate environment in a way. In those years, I think that, um, yes, partially that, but actually it was quite scary in I that respect. I bet it was really scary. Because, you, you know, those people were people, the, the Comme des Garçons and people like that, they were people that have been around a lot longer than us. Uh, so I feel like, yes, it was actually, yeah, quite nerve-wracking too. But what gave me the confidence was 
someone like Alexander McQueen went to Paris actually in the same year, without me even knowing. So that actually made me feel better. There's another British designer there who, who you know, showing in the same season. So, and, and you also thought, you know, I was already here like from, from sort of 94 until 2000. You know, it, it was also the next step for us. And we did, of course, talk to people about it if they thought it was a good idea. We didn't just willy-nilly do it. So actually, it was quite well thought out. You've talked about how difficult it is doing a show. I think people don't realize that outside the industry. How do you actually feel backstage, minutes before, or maybe even, I mean, you can decide what the best period of time, but the, the last two hours when hair and makeup's being done, how do you feel? Gosh, it's, um, we do it twice a year, and there were two shows, and actually another, there's three seasons that we didn't do shows, we did films, and we invited people into the gallery, and you, you remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, doing it, they are kind of, um, in a way, I'm so used to it, but there's a different story every time. So that sometimes there's risk-taking, and there's been a lot of risks that we took that things can go wrong. You worry about the things going wrong. So, um, you know, if there's like a garment that goes from one shape to another, and the girl has to do something, and is she going to get it right? That kind of thing. So I'm always focusing on that, and afterwards, such a relief. But... Um, I, I, I am confident but nervous at the same time. It's a peculiar feeling. So I feel, yeah, it's... I think it's, uh, it's good that you do them because you, you, you have a... You know, I always feel better for doing a show. And afterwards, when everybody comes rushing backstage and everybody queues, I've always thought that must be incredibly difficult because you're exhausted and then you've got a queue of people many of whom are just going to say to you, that was fabulous. You know, it really matters that the people that you care about come backstage. <laughs> if they are people that you care about coming back, it is really nice because you've worked for six months on that collection and you haven't seen a lot of your friends. And if there are people in the industry that you know and that you respect their opinion and everything, it is a really nice feeling, I have to say. Um, and it does mean a lot to me. I, I am always appreciative. I actually don't get annoyed or, you know, you like answering questions? I don't mind answering questions if they're good questions. Yeah. Should we open it up to some yeah, good questions? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I have to put my different glasses on. <laughs> Would anybody like to ask Hussein a question? Over here, this man with his hand up at the back. Hello, and thank you. Um, about five years ago, the then dean of Thames Valley University told me that a pattern cutting table was so large the Thames Valley couldn't afford to rent the floor space to have one in their fashion course. And the professor of fashion at um, Hertfordshire University uh, says that a lack of technical skill is a spur to creativity. Um, what do you think about the loss of those traditional skills in the industry? Um, well, I definitely feel that... Um, there needs to be an, a balance between craft and technology because technology can make you do things that you, you couldn't have done before, which is exciting. But craft is needed for quality, in my view, and for precision, you know, for, for precision in, in making a garment. So for me, I think people who, who, are, who have a certain craft, if they also 
learn about um, you know, new technologies and how you can do things, I think it's a perfect combination. Uh, there is a lot of, we've done so much work which involves handwork, uh, but you may, the same garment might also involve laser cutting, you know, may also ha use synthetics as well as natural fabrics in the same piece. So for me, I think it's, I'm interested in the correlation of the two. I do think that if in, in fashion education, crafts and knowing how to do things by hand, learning how to flat pattern cut as well as uh, drape, I think for me is essential because you, it affects the way you design. When you know how a collar is cut, I think you design differently and you design in a better way because you know how it's cut. You can always tell from the way someone draws if they know about how something is cut. And in a way, actually, that's quite interesting because in this country, I think that is true. But in France, in Paris in particular, there is a massive renewed interest in people who are technicians and who specialise in those things. And young people are coming in and doing it. And people realised, I think, that it was, in a way, dying out. And so they've really boosted it. And that's a great thing. But you have to be a specialist as well sometimes as a craftsperson. So sometimes I think, you know, I remember when I made my own patterns at college, I, I really enjoyed doing it, but you, you go into that mode and it's very hard to do that and other things at the same time. So that's why if you have people that, that in your operation that actually do your cutting for you, they have to be really focused just on doing that because you get into that world. And I think it's very hard for people who have businesses to do both. Any other questions? Hi. Um, when designing one of your pieces which may have like, a lot of technology in it, let's say like, one of the robotic dresses, um, what's the process and like, relationship between you and I assume a technician or someone you need to help you yeah. doing that? And how often like, do you have ideas which will be prevented by what you can physically do? Yeah. Well, um, if normally if, I, if, if there's an idea that requires technology, we build a mini team of uh, mechanical engineers, you know, uh, programmers, etc., who are not from our world, and they would have often never done anything like this. So um, it's a challenge for them as well. And, um, you know, you kind of, the best way to start is with your ultimate idea and discuss it with that team. And then if you've managed to make 65, 70% of your initial idea, that's already a success. But there is a lot of back and forth with experiments, and you explore what's possible, what's not possible. It's a long, long journey. Um, but in, in my case, um, you know, a lot of the technological pieces we've made definitely have been uh, with teams of people. But I must add, they would have never done anything like it before. So for them, it's also a challenge. And uh, so we try to do it. You know, we try to sort of um, uh, really. Um, experiment in parts, do sections, you know, before it's all put together. But it's definitely, you know, what's not possible can also lead to new ideas that actually you may have not thought about. So sometimes the impossibility of something can lead to an exciting result. And actually you've done a lot of things that no one has ever seen before. The mechanical dresses yeah. that morphed between decades, the crystals that... Yeah. Embedded in the dress is amazing. Any other questions? This lady down here. Hello again. 
Hi, Hussein. Hello. It's lovely to see you. Um, Sara Shamsavari is my name. Hi. And um, just, I'd just like to say again, as I always say, I, you know, it's amazing how you have uh, managed not to be pigeonholed and the way that you move um, between uh, different different art forms, I guess, as well as being a designer and, and how wonderful that that is. And I also wanted to ask you about, you know, being, firstly, I wanted to thank you that being from Turkish heritage, that you don't shy away from talking about that and that you don't, um, you don't avoid it in any way and, and, and you don't, maybe people don't want to, uh, you don't, people may not want to um, hear about that so much, but you don't avoid talking about it. I wanted to hear from you how you felt the industry has responded to when you've talked more about your own heritage. Um, well, I, I don't see there's any, there's absolutely no reason to, to not talk about being Turkish. I mean, I think we come from an amazing, I would say, you know, we are kind of probably the children of the Ottoman Empire because we are of very mixed background as I know you're Iranian, right? <laughs> yes. And um, so I feel like, um, you know, for me, it's a richness. Honestly, I think being able to go back to the Turkish side and the Cypriot side of my life is super exciting. You know, one minute you have your grandmother reading your coffee cups <laughs> and next minute I'm working with laser dresses. You know, it's, <laughs> it's amazing. It's for, for me, really, uh, uh, I feel honestly blessed. And there's a lot of humanity in our culture and actually a lot of very interesting people. I, I am happy to be from that background. I mean, I almost, I feel kind of it's, it's, it's a luck for me. I don't know why anyone would not feel um, proud of their background, wherever you are. Mm. I think it's, why wouldn't you? I think it's wonderful, but myself personally, I'm growing up from um, an ethnic mi minority heritage. Again, I feel all these wonderful things about my own culture, but I have felt that growing up in this one, as you mentioned... Do you about feel marginalised? Um, I, I don't, I feel free, like you. I feel free, I feel like a creator, but I do, I am aware of the external... Uh, kind of things that are the labels that others either try and put on you or they try to avoid once you reach a certain point of success um, it's almost like people don't want to talk about that you know I think that in London uh, in London London is a melting pot of so many cultures and it's a place where you could be a universal person I, I honestly think it's the only place where you would have someone like Nasser Hussein, Muslim guy, be a captain of a cricket team. Where else would you see that happen? <laughs> you know, so I think it's, it's amazing for that. It's a great place and to be. But, you know, go outside London slightly, <laughs> it changes. Yeah. So I think um, London, I always think of London as a state. You know, I said this before. Mm. So I think London is a kind of a country in its own right. And I feel very lucky to be living here. And I really do, even though ethnically I'm Turkish, Turkish Cypriot, um, I do feel like a Londoner. Yeah, so I, f I feel very much the same. Yeah, so I think you, it's something that to be happy I about. I think we only have time for one more sorry. question. I'm very sorry to cut you off. <laughs> this lady here. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> okay. I'm Essie. Um, I'm a student. Um, Fashion student. Yeah, CSM, like you. <laughs> um, I was just asking, um, nowadays, um, 
fashion's become more accessible to people, like high fashion and just more, ex like, um, what's the word? Ex experimentary work. Um, and I love your work and I just was wondering, would you love to see your work just on the street? Like, what, like your catwalk collections, like, would you just love to see someone like just rip their dress and then it changes to the other dress, like that kind of thing? <laughs> on the street? Yeah, just see it. Why like, not? Yeah. If it's done elegantly, why not? Yeah. But I think your question is more probably about would I want to see my work um, reflected on the street more, yeah. like more visible, more, more visible. Yeah, more visible, yeah. Well, listen, I think if you look at all the designers, there are versions of our work on the street already mm. because, you know, the high street watch what we all do. I'm yeah. not the designer, you know, this is happening. Mm. So you do kind of see ramifications of designers' work on the streets already. Yeah. Because, you know, there's trend boards and all that and magazines, there are... You know, people that do predictions and all the designers are in there. Yeah. So actually, you know, all the designers, even though we seem exclusive, yeah. we kind of reach people in a, diff in a more indirect way, if that mm. answers your question. Yeah. Last question. At the back with the orange shirt. I can't see the colours, probably it's dark at the back. Um, so in, in the talk you guys mentioned about rapid growth and, and steady growth, um, in 10 years' time, where exactly do you see your brand going? Would you want to be just as, um, I guess, massive as some of the other labels that we see in the fashion magazines in terms of the rapid growth that they themselves are doing yearly? Or do you, do you still want to continue that steady growth that you yourself have spoken about? Well, I mean, my biggest dream is really to get into retail because, honestly, that you create your own world then. And I guess it, to get into new product categories... So uh, that, but retail with the new product categories is really my ideal, my, my dream, because it's the only time you can really show your world um, in a complete way and in the way that you want to, it to be seen. Um, so I feel like that's what I'm gravitating towards, definitely. And, um, and you know, we're constantly meeting different people who are offering different things. And, uh, but I, I'd, I'd say I need, you know, the important thing is to make the, take the right steps because so quickly you can feel like you're in a prison if you're not with the right partner. And, and you know, you, you see designers suffering from that. So I guess I am cautious at the same time. So it's wanting to grow, but with caution. So, yeah. So that's it. So thank you thank so you. much for, for saying you've been very eloquent. Thank you. Thank you.